Hey there, I'm Ant Morehouse, and welcome to the Antitoxin Podcast. The Antitoxin is designed for the professional who has ticked all the social norm boxes but feels like something is missing. The entrepreneur at risk of losing perspective, and the dreamer who wants to turn their epic idea into reality. Join me and my awesomely authentic and vulnerable guests as we explore how to avoid living lives of quiet desperation and instead aim to achieve what I call the triple crown of having a fulfilling professional life while doing some good in this world while having a hell of a lot of fun along the way. Hey everyone, my guest today is Damien Manda. There is a big language warning on this episode. Damo does not mix his words. Damo is a ex-Australian Navy clearance diver and special forces guy, went through a massive personal low after the military and really had to dig himself out. And he found his purpose in Zimbabwe and he founded the International Anti-Poaching Foundation and they're achieving enormous things in Zim and around Africa. Damien's been featured on countless programs, 60 Minutes and ABC in Australia and around the world. He's got an amazing TED Talk that I'm going to add to the show notes because if you're listening to this episode, then you really also should watch his TED Talk because it's just so impactful. This is a pretty raw episode. I hope you get something out of it. Well, Damo, thanks very much for coming on to the show today. I know you're a, you're a busy guy and you've got operations going on, no doubt, as we speak. So what I wanted to kick off with, mate, is you and I served in the same Special Forces unit. You're a Navy clearance diver and a counterterrorism sniper. You go over to Iraq, you do a heap of work over there. Then you find yourself in Zimbabwe. That was a long time ago. You're still there right now doing some incredible stuff. Take me through that journey of landing in Zim and finding your passion. Yeah, mate. Well, first, thanks for having us on on the show, mate. You know, it's, it's good to be here. Good to be in contact again. I know it's been a while. We've kept contact over the years, mate. But uh, yeah, look, mate, I suppose from my side, I've always been one that has had to push myself to the, you know, the very edge of the spectrum, whether it's all the way to the bottom or all the way to the top before, you know, I kick into gear and, and have to react. And that's just, I, I just know how I function, mate. You know, with the military and, and, and getting into the units that we got into, it was, you know, the absolute elite physical standards and, and having something like that to aim towards and work towards. And then, you know, it was off to Iraq, mate. I didn't deploy as part of the unit that we were with there at Tag East. You know, so I sort of, and my parents didn't know. When I, when I went to Iraq, my parents didn't know I was over there. I told him I, I took a security advisor's gig in um, in Dubai, and then a few few lads got killed, and it was in the news back home. And you know they sort of knew that we we were working together and trying to explain it to the parents, you know, because I'm really close with with my parents, especially my mum. I said, you know, it's, it's, it'd be like training all week, every week, and never getting to play on the weekend. So you know, I wanted to go and play the game. And uh, you know, when you're over there, it was very you know very much the same as as, as back at the unit in terms of the camaraderie and. I've never been in another workplace before and I've never seen another workplace that's like that. You're at work all week with the lads and then all you want to do on the weekend is hang out with the same guys because you, you know that 
those people are watching your back more than you care about your own life. And that's, that's something very hard to find in, in anywhere else in any other sector or industry. And then it stops. You make a decision you know, in the private sector. You, you say, I've, I've had enough. I'm going to stop. And that's the what next. And uh, you go from, from being something very special to a group of other people and an integral part of a team, and not just a team that a mission relies upon, but other people's lives rely upon when you're functioning as part of a single living, fighting organism. And then you're not, you're out of it. And I think, I think this is where a lot of guys struggle. And I say guys, you know, men and women. Uh, I think this is where, where a lot of people struggle with the what next. And for a lot of people, I think the real war doesn't start until the bullets stop and you're trying to figure out you know, what do you do next in life? What's the next chapter? You know, for me, I mean, there's no job for a sniper in the local newspaper when you get back home to Australia. Do a few cash jobs, mother-in-law here and there, or, or my <laughs> next-door neighbour. But uh, <laughs> you got to figure out the what next. Now, for me, the what next became, I thought, fuck, you know, I've earned it. I'm going to go and have a party. And I went to South America, mate, and um, faced down in a plate of cocaine for the better part of a year and drunk for most of it. There's... It's literally wow. three days a week in South America. Three days a week over there, mate, Monday to Wednesday. That's one day to Sunday. The sun just goes up and down a few times. Break for a day, sleep for 24 hours and go again. I did that for 11 months, mate, living in La Paz, doing tours into San Pedro, maximum security prison. They say the best cocaine in the world is made inside there. And it seemed like fun at the time. Yeah, I was, I'd been smuggling ketamine into the maximum security prison and swapping it for cocaine. You know, and this was this was the next sort of the next cycle of my life, and sort of hit rock bottom, mate. You do that for eleven months, you fucking you hit rock bottom. Now I'm the sort of guy that has to hit rock bottom before I know I can bounce. And the thing is, some people hit rock bottom, they go th- through the floor, yeah, rather than bounce off it. I, I was lucky, mate. I was one of the lucky ones. You know, between us, we know enough people that didn't bounce. They they yeah. went through the floor and kept going. You know, so I was lucky, mate. I'd heard about Andy poaching um, uh, a decade before. And um, I packed my bags, mate, and decided to sort my shit out. And so you went to Zim, not as a tourist, you went on a trip. You went over there to, to launch yourself into anti-poaching. I joined the military not to serve my country. I did it for adventure. I right. went to Iraq not to help the cause for the Iraqi people. I did it to make money. Yeah. And I came to Africa looking for a fight, not a cause. And then when I was over here, there's a couple of things that, that started to started to click for me, mate. You know, I'll say categorically, mate, I was a selfish fucker. Everything I'd done in my life up until then was about me, it was about Damien Amanda. was either about making money or about looking good and it all linked back to greed. Oh, well, not greed, to ego. Greed is just yeah. a function of ego. Yeah. And it linked back to that. It's just like how did I appear outwardly to other people? What did other people think of me? Where am I getting the next cool pictures for Facebook? How tough can I look? How tough can I be? And then I suppose the big wake-up call for me was seeing seeing rangers over here. Uh, now, these are people that have given up pretty much everything in their life to be looking after something greater than themselves. And they do it. They, they spend up to 11 months of the year away from their family. They get paid fuck all. And I just come from Iraq making upwards of a quarter of a million US a year fighting for fucking oil in the ground and dotted lines on a map and these guys are fighting for the heart and lungs of the planet and they got fuck all. You know, we, we get fucked up in Northern Baghdad we push a couple of red buttons and everyone's scrambling to come and help us, mate. These guys haven't even got a fucking radio to call anyone when they get shit out in the middle of the bush. 
seeing that was a wake-up call for me because I was over there trying to have an adventure on the back of their hard work where they'd given up everything in their life. Now, that was happening in parallel with seeing what was happening with animals. And, I mean, I, I, used, I was a piece of shit, mate. I used to, I, the worst kind of hunter, the one that did it for fun, not even for food or anything like that, just go out and shoot shit for the thrill of it. I don't know, mate. I don't know what it was. Maybe it's just retrospect and having a rock behind you and, and all that. Maybe it was just getting a bit older and a bit wiser and having time to reflect. Maybe it was South America and bottoming out and just going, you know, what the fuck is life about? Maybe it was a combination of all, all, all of the above, probably. But, uh, you know, seeing what was happening to animals and the environment over here, you know, you know there was a couple of catalyst moments, mate, but the reality was it was probably a decade worth of, of build-up shaping me into what I was going to become in the future and not what, more importantly, who yeah. I was going to be. And uh, I'd done reasonably well with real estate, bought my first house at the age of uh, just before my 21st birthday. By the time I left the military, I had six properties in Australia, had two in Dubai. And, uh, you know, if I was smart with my money, I didn't need to work uh, for the foreseeable future. You know, I made a decision in 2009 and started selling those properties and uh, yeah, put it all into starting up the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. Ten years on, you know, we've trained hundreds and hundreds of rangers across southern and East Africa, rangers that help protect over 5 million acres of, of wilderness, protecting millions of, of sentient creatures, millions of acres of, of natural forest. And uh, you know, the likes of Dr. Jane Goodall on a, a, as, our, as our patron and head of our advisory board, registered in four countries and, and growing as an organisation. It's amazing. And so when you first got over there and you started living the life of an anti-poacher, were you working with another organisation or you just saw what was going on and thought, right, I have to start something, I have to create something to make this more impactful? If I've learned one thing in the past 20 years is, is that never a second is wasted on reconnaissance. <laughs> I came here in the last, I came here 10 years ago, mate, knew fuck all about Zimbabwe and thought this would be a really good spot for a white guy to set up a paramilitary training group. Not knowing about the political background here, look, we got off to a flying start and then we, you know, we hit a brick wall, mate. I, and, you know, one thing I didn't, one thing I didn't even seek out hard enough or I just wasn't lucky enough to stumble across it, I didn't have good mentors here on the ground. You know, I had a few people that were involved, but, you know, essentially in the, in the eyes of a lot of people, you know, and it's not like they... they you know, all the industry here got together and sat me down at a big conference and said, you know, Damien, thank you very much. You know, we've been doing this for 30, 40 years, but you've arrived and you, you've saved us all. Very much the opposite, mate. That, that never fucking happened. You know, it was very much a lot of friction with the industry over here. A foreigner coming over, we got a lot of media attention. Um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But, uh, you know, it rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. And, you know, in a lot of aspects, we're very much isolated. It's that isolation that pushes you far enough into a corner where you have to figure out, you either pack your bags and fuck off or you figure out how to make it work. And over the course of the last decade, we figured out how to make it work. And how did you get, you know, so you've, got, you've, you've seen just the, the amazing work that these guys on the ground are doing, giving up their entire lives to, to protect the environment, to protect these animals. You've realised that, you know, you've hit rock bottom and now, it sounds like you get to a point where the adventure turns into a cause. How long did it take before you felt that, you know, you'd built something that was making a tangible difference and all of the, I guess, the sacrifice was, was worthwhile? 
you know, we got off to a very flying start here in, in Zimbabwe from 2009 to 2000. And, and I actually, I remember, I think it was the 5th of March 2012 when the Australian newspaper ran a story about uh, so-called SAS spies operating in the country that ran front pages of the newspaper here in Zimbabwe. And that wow. I pretty much lost everything overnight, was uh, accused of espionage. I was out of the country at the time. I was asked to come back by various intelligence agencies here and answer questions in relation to that. For two years, trying to clear my name, I was out of the country. I had a pregnant wife, uh, no home, and I just lost everything that I'd spent the last decade working for. If that doesn't fucking wake you up, then nothing will. And, you know, I could have packed my shit then and, and I could have gone and taken another job in the last, made some money back over the next couple of years. Could have got back into the military. That door was open. Could have done a bunch of things, mate, but I dug my heels in and said, fuck, I'm not going anywhere because it wasn't about me anymore and it wasn't about what I wanted to do. It was about what I could do. It was about the cause. We went from being an organisation that operated and focused on Zimbabwe to it turned us, it forced us to become a a multinational organisation. We registered in South Africa. We started a program in Mozambique. To fund that, we had to register in the United States, our biggest uh, market sector, and we just grew, mate. But we grew, and uh, we fucking took a turd and we polished it, mate. And uh, so, mate, you know what it's like—you get a shit sandwich, fucking grab a corner and start chewing. And that's that's what we had, mate. And this is that. I mean, we were, we were living in fucking backpackers in Kempton Park in a shitty part of Joburg with a fucking one-month-old baby, trying to piece all this together and figure out the what next. We just built a home for ourselves in Zimbabwe. You know, we had a growing business. We had a huge contract with the government, and all of that stopped overnight. When the chips are down, you know, I think. I actually loved that, mate. And I remember, mm. you, you might know Dino, who we operated with, and you know, we were in Iraq together. Mm. Dino was with us the first first four years over here. Mate, we, we sat there. We sat there looking at a bank account. We had 2000 bucks left. Yeah. So we need to figure out how to fucking make this work. And I think there's, there's nothing. We look at problems as, you know, often we, we look at problems as, as a reason to be down or, you know, fucking depressed or whatever, I, you know. A problem is a challenge, and a challenge is a reason to get up in the morning. It's what kicks us into fighting gear, okay? And I think it's what can bring out the best in us. If we sit in this autopilot phase where things are cruising, you've got the nice house, you've got the nice job, it's 2.3 kids, the cars, whatever, you know you're going to get the Christmas bonus, you know, you know you're going to the beach at Christmas and all that shit. And that's monotonous. I don't want that shit. You know, I want the challenges. I want the risks. Because the risk, with the risk, they come rewards, and the rewards are far greater than, than living a life in fucking fourth gear, just cruising along. And I think that's built deep, deep in our DNA because you know hundreds or thousands of generations. That's what we had to do, and it's only been very, very recently that humankind has had the opportunity to sit back and watch television and eat popcorn and be fat, dumb, and happy. And it's making us miserable. Yeah, and you are definitely the extreme example of taking a challenge and and running with it. But you know that sense of satisfaction, man. That's 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 built into our DNA, and you're absolutely yeah. living it. I, I wouldn't think of myself as extreme or anything. I'm just a normal fucking dude that refused to look backwards, man. Right. You know, yeah. Just a fucking flesh and blood, man. You know, and people see. You know, I get emails all the time from people saying, like, "Fuck, how do you do it?" You know, fuck, I'd love to do something like that. You know, <laughs> I did it because I fucking carved it out of granite with fucking blood and sweat and tears. I never said no and I never looked back. I never said I'm going to fucking give up on this. 
And run me through, you know, a, a day in the life for your for your people now. I'm going to attach some imagery, you know, particularly I think there's an award-winning shot of one of your super hardcore female rangers, you know, weapon, uh, camouflage. I mean, this is, if anyone is listening to this and thinking that this is Damo and a team of people around laptops in Harare doing government liaison and raising money, I mean, it's it's the opposite to that. You are... You are out there on on opera, or your your people now in particular. They're they're out there on operations all day, every day, yeah. fighting yeah. fighting poachers, right? Yeah, true, man. We've got an operation going right now. Well, aside from the operations that are running, we have a you know twenty four seven. You know, we have a a fairly big sting operation that should be going down this evening. And you're operating in four countries, right? Yeah, we're operating in southern in, in East Africa, mate. Zimbabwe, Mozambique. And so what's the, I mean, give me a story. Give me a, give us something that will give those listening a sense of just what these, what these people are up to and the, and the impact that they're having on the ground to save some of the world's most endangered species. You never want to be sitting in autopilot. And we're, we're within an industry here, conservation, that's had billions of dollars spent on it the past decades. And conservation and communities or conservation is becoming increasingly militarised. We were asked in 2015 to take over a program in, in Mozambique and secure the eastern flank of Kruger National Park on Mozambique territory. Kruger runs up against the border there. Now in the southern part of Kruger National Park is a third of the world's rhino population and this rhino population was accounting for around 70% of rhino deaths each year. We went in there June 2015, and we set up a ground and air offensive against um, rhino poaching syndicates operating out of Mozambique. At the time, there were around 400 different organisations operating on the South African side of the border, but there wasn't one operating on the piece of land that separated most of the rhino poaching syndicates in the world in Mozambique and the highest concentration of population of rhino in the world in Kruger. We had 165 personnel engaged, four different government departments, helicopters, aircraft, bigger fences and more guns, spending a million bucks a year securing that piece of land. And we essentially shut off poachers coming into southern Kruger National Park from Mozambique. Uh, It allowed Kruger to send their forces to their western boundary. And in 2016, for the first time in nearly a decade, there was a global downturn in rhino poaching uh, numbers. Wow. Everyone thought that was great. I looked at it, I said, this is not the answer. It wasn't the answer because we were having a war with the local population. We were having a war and it wasn't sustainable. And this age-old cliche of winning the hearts and minds, Mm. we couldn't have been further away from that. It made us look at a different way to do business. Uh, And this is an an industry that's dominated by males and men in a counterinsurgency theatre, we tend to have one thing on on the mind and that's countering insurgents. Now, this was at, a, at around the same time that uh, we were reading an overwhelming body of evidence and you know, amount of articles saying that empowering women is, is one of the single greatest forces for positive change in the world today. Now, you and I both know that women in our units were probably the last thing we fucking wanted back in the day. And I can speak from, from when I was in the Navy with the divers. You know, we actually put a hand up and said, we'd like to make our entrance standards harder so women can't get into these units. This is in a study done with Wollongong University. I've gone on to build a career across three continents by bringing fairly hardened men to the point of breaking and then rebuilding them into what we need on the front lines. Women never featured in the equation. Yep. Didn't want them in the equation. 
early 2017, I read an article in the New York Times and it was about the U.S. Army Rangers putting women through U.S. Army Ranger training. That sparked my interest because in 2007, you know, we got hit up in northern Baghdad there and it was U.S. Army Rangers that came and pulled us out of the shit. You know? So had they not come there that day, I don't know what would have happened, but it fucking wasn't looking good. So I sort of put two and two together. I'm thinking, well, if, if women can now be part of this U.S. Army Ranger units, why can't there be rangers out here on the front lines where right. men outnumber women by around 75 to 100 to 1? And if other industries are progressing by up through the rank uh, and into management positions, then us as an industry here have spent billions of dollars and we're still talking about animals going extinct. Maybe, maybe there's another way to look at things. August 2017, we sat down with the chief and the councillors and the local government representatives in a very patriarchal society said, we want to put a group of women through training and deploy them out here to protect this, this abandoned trophy hunting block in the lower Zambezi ecosystem, one of the largest elephant populations on the planet. And they said we were crazy. They said it wouldn't work. They said, we're not going to give you a full training course. We'll give you three days. They gave us 72 hours to put these women through, through training. And basically, that was 72 hours for us to prove to ourselves that this wasn't going to work. When we put the recruitment call out in the local communities, you know, for no other reason than, fuck, I'm an Aussie, mate. We're always fighting for the underdog. If we were potentially going to give out jobs here, then let's give it to the people that need it the most. Yeah. So we put the call out. They were all uh, uh, victims of serious sexual assault, domestic violence, AIDS, or single mothers, abandoned wives, the ones that were doing it the toughest. And we started training uh, putting them through a, the four pillars of misery to be hungry, uh, tired, cold and wet. You know you know what it's like, fucking selection training, just yeah. beasting them. And, mate, halfway through day one, we knew we had something very special. They're fucking tough. We don't want glowing CVs. We want scrappers, mate. We want the ones that, are, that knows exactly what it's like to have to fight to survive. And that's what these women were. And then the, the responsibility very quickly shifted from them having to prove to us that they were worthy of being trained to us having to build a training team that was worthy of deploying them on the front lines. That was, uh, was about 18 months ago now, 98 arrests they've made. They've shattered the stereotypes of what anti-poaching and conservation should look like on the ground in Africa. The model is being rolled out in Kenya and other areas of uh, Zimbabwe as we speak. We're currently spending around a third to a quarter per acre per annum on this program because women de-escalate everything and we're having conversations yeah. instead of conflict so we don't right. need helicopters and airplanes and bigger fences and more guns they're fantastic at collecting intelligence i think around three percent of crimes that are solved around the world are solved by catching someone in the act in law enforcement the other 97 percent are through intelligence-led operations and these women are fantastic at that not only that now, we're in, in Zimbabwe here. Zimbabwe ranks 165 out of 180 countries on the Global Corruption Index, one of the most corrupt countries in the world. If you can come to a place like Zimbabwe and remove corruption from the equation, you're already halfway home. And that's exactly... We, we haven't seen one case of corruption with these women. That allows us to employ 100% from the local community. Historically, we'd employ men from around the country and bring them in so they're not influenced by the people they grew up with. By being able to employ 100% from the local community, it shifts the largest line items in our budget, which is law enforcement uh, salaries, into a community investment. So we're putting more money into the local community. Uh, we're putting the same amount into the local community every 34 days is what the trophy hunting operation before us 
did per annum. So we have a, a viable economic alternative to trophy hunting that puts women at the centre of the strategy, giving us the greatest traction in community development and conservation simply became the byproduct. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. And it's just so scalable. So how do you take this and and do even more? Like what are you what's keeping you awake at night? What are you what are you striving for now? Because you've already achieved so much, but you can hear it in your voice. This is not a conversation of a man who's, you know, been there, done that, and now he's sort of writing a memoir. You're you're in the thick of it right now and you're clearly not satisfied. So what do you do from here? Uh, look, mate, so across Africa, collectively, there's an area the size of Texas that has been set aside for trophy hunting. Trophy hunting is a dying industry, reduced wildlife populations, shifting policy around the export of trophies such as elephant ivory from countries like Zim to uh, big client countries like the US. And then you've got a, a generation raised on social media. The click of a button, they can see exactly what trophy hunting looks like. Doesn't want to get on a plane, fly across the world anymore to shoot something in the face. Fair enough. So all that means less people coming over to shoot these animals and it means the areas that have been set aside no longer have a lot of the income. We didn't want to look at, at trophy hunting as an argument to be had but rather an equation to be solved. Now, with the employment of women, there's two and a half times more funding in Africa for female empowerment than there is for conservation. The entire program is vegan. It's the fastest growing food sector in the United States. Uh, 600% increase over the last four years. We are taking over the world. For all those listeners out there, that's our largest funding base in the United States. There's more and more people looking at the program from that perspective and the program we have called Back to Black Roots, which is looking at diet and nutrition from an economic, nutritional and environmental and ethical standpoint. So we get funding from that sector being an economic alternative to trophy hunting. We get... Uh, animal rights funding, and then we get traditional conservation funding. So we're in the process of just refining this model, proving it as a best practice case study. Um, the second one starts on the 1st of April in Kenya, Segera Conservancy. And we're just basically building a, a team of organisations across the continent that are going to take this model and, and continue rolling it out. And look, this isn't something to replace everything that's going on out there. We want to fix the existing and create the new. We have another program up in Kenya called Lead Ranger. I think it'll be some of the most important work that I'm ever involved with in my life. We looked at the conservation industry and often the difference between success and a failure in, in any program out here is, is the lack of one good leader. I think 1% of philanthropic funding in, in Africa is, is spent on leadership development. So for us, that meant that 1% was determining how effective the other 99% has been operationally utilised. And I think if we were doing it right, the situation would be much better. So we've been focusing on training leaders, identified leaders from other networks or parks networks, other organisations, as well as our own, and building them into the leaders they need to be so we have a permanent, solid management presence in each of the programs that are out there on the continent, as well as an instructional component. And uh, we're also doing that in parallel with... Akashinga, which is the name of the, the female program. So we're thinking about scalability even before we started. Love it. All comes down to funding, mate. Being yeah. borrowing, stealing. Fundraising is not my cup of tea. However, when I do get on a plane and fly across the world to, to speak to people, we seem to have a spike in, in donations and philanthropic giving. That's why I'm, I'm, oh, tomorrow, mate, I'm flying out. I'm off to Denmark, Sweden, France, then Hong Kong, then the States, back here for a week, then in the States again for another month. So... 
Yeah, mate. Look, it's, it's, it's about getting the word out there. Uh, we've been getting a lot of media, which helps helps shift the needle. And it, it's changed. Like, media has changed in terms of, you know, people used to watch a show and they go, fuck, that's good. They get on your website and make a donation. Now it's like you get the media and there's, you know, we have such short attention spans now. You know, they're on to the next thing straight after they've watched your show. So it's, yeah. it's like... Okay, so media is great for getting the word out there. You've then got to follow up. And so, I mean, it helps when you walk into a meeting or a presentation. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, fuck, I remember that guy. I saw him on 60 Minutes or whatever. You know, so, I mean, this program has been covered by 60 Minutes, BBC, National Geographic Magazine is doing a full spread on it. comes out in May. We're doing a documentary with uh, James Cameron and Lightbox Studios who did Searching for Sugar Man uh, with National Geographic. You know, so there's good media coming here, but it's the follow-up and it's just a constant presence, mate, being out there. And that's just, I mean, you know about dealing with, with uh, evolving insurgencies. We, you know, we're just dealing with, with an evolving market space and the, the principles in, in warfare are the same as in business. How do you go from one world to the other? I mean, one, one minute you're in Zim, you know, you're focused on operations, you've got, you've got a sting operation going down tonight, and then the next minute you've got video cameras in your face, you know, you're on ABC, you're on 60 Minutes, you're speaking to the United Nations, you're doing TED Talks. How do you not explode, I guess, going from that one world to, to another so, so rapidly? You know, one minute you're dealing with people who are giving their entire lives to the conservation effort in the local community, very tactical. I can imagine very grounding for you as an individual and the next you're in Manhattan at a black tie event, you know, raising money. Such a contrast. Very simply, mate, you build a very good team. And in any of those aspects of the organisation, I'm not the common denominator. Yep. Okay, we've got a good team that looks after fundraising. We've got a good team that looks after back office. We've got great project managers. I'm just the person drifting. I'm just the, the one that drifts in and out, okay? So I am the common denominator. I'm not the permanent fixture in each of those sectors, you know? We used to be described as bus crash organisation. If Damien gets fucking hit by a bus, we're fucked. Right. And... Um, that maybe you know review how we operate as an organisation. You know, well, okay, we actually are, we we would be fucked. What would happen here to this legacy we're trying to build if if we haven't got a team to carry it on? And so it's slow, it's hard, it's a lot of heartache in bloody um, then hiring and firing, mate. And, you know, we, we do fire more than we hire. Mm-hmm. You know, but when you get a good team, mate, there's there's nothing that can replace that. You know, and I had this conversation with with someone that left the organisation recently, and you know, I said, look, in the military. Yeah, things are done very differently and, and they're done very differently to how we do things in a corporate world. So, you know, we, we have the sort of corporate structure within the organisation and we've got the operational structure. Now with the operational structure, it's very easy to get 10 people in, you know, cut them down until you're left with the best ones, and which I think is fantastic. CVs, references, fucking, mate, qualifications, all that shit, it means zero to me anymore because I've been let down so many times. The only thing that, that works is getting people in if they're fucking good, great, keep them. If they're not, fuck them off. You know, it's very hard to do that in a corporate world where you got, you know, you got to have your fucking package and your big salaries and nice contracts and all that, and everyone needs to be fucking wrapped in cotton wool. It's not like that over here, and it wasn't like that in the military. You sign up for a fucking special operations selection course, you know, you know, you're going in there as part of a fucking, you know, hundred dudes. There's going to be ten left at the end of the day. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's may not be everybody's cup of tea. You're getting told to fuck off. You don't, you don't fit the mold, but it works over here on the ground. I'd love to be able to do that in a corporate world, but uh, <laughs> people get upset too easily. Mate, last question before I let you let you go, because uh, you know it's it's family time, and I know you're flying out 
So hit me, hit me with the vegan stuff because so I'm, I'm a vegetarian. I haven't taken the full sort of step yet. I know you're really passionate about it and you, you're creating, you know, you're part of a, of a big movement and, and in many respects you're ground zero to, to the impact. And, you know, what I love about the way you talk about it is that when people think vegans, they think about a, a wafy, thin, liberal arts student reading philosophy, you know, in the inner city suburbs, but you're a big, tough guy, no bullshit, and you're on the front line of this whole conservation movement. So what does veganism mean to you? And it sounds like the way you're talking about it, you know, it's where we're going. It's where humanity has to go to, because there's no planet B. So, I mean, to take it back a step, my approach to becoming vegan was my approach to a lot of the big changes that I've made in life. It was about standing in front of the mirror, acknowledging who I was and deciding if that was the person I wanted to be. And if it wasn't, what was I going to do to change it? And that's a very fucking confronting thing to do. And not yeah. many people have the balls to do that. We like to, we're creatures of convenience. We don't like to step outside our comfort zone. And look, our biggest critics are ourselves, hey? Our biggest critics are ourselves. If you can't answer your own big questions, man, then you know, who are you? You know, and it's, it's a fucking difficult thing to do, mate. It's a difficult thing to do. But, you know, I would say going vegan was probably the best, most liberating decision I've ever made in my life. To give you the, the chronological rundown, you know, I started, you know, from the hunting days to being over here, wandering around the bush for three or four years, protecting one group of animals, getting in front of cameras, standing on stages and, and asking people to help, you know, support that. And then going home at night and cooking another group of animals, I knew that I was full of shit. There was a, you know, a transition stage and part of that transition stage was violent internal opposition. This is not something I'm ready to do. This is not something I want to do. But the decision became bigger than me because ultimately, mate, I was paying someone else to be an asshole to animals. I was paying yeah. someone to do something that I wasn't prepared to do myself. And I didn't want to be that person anymore. I didn't want to fucking be that person. You know, I'd signed up to start this organization because I wanted to help things that needed to be helped and I wanted to protect things that needed to be protected and build teams that did that. And, mate, fucking patrolled 23 hours in the day out there, seven days a week. If I came home and spent the other hour eating meat, it would just fucking deleted all that good work that I'd just been doing all day because, mate, like us in conservation... I think conservationists should be driving a vegan movement, a plant-based movement. People get involved with conservation because we either love animals or love the environment or a combination of the two. Uh, the meat industry is the single greatest negative impact on this planet environmentally. It's responsible for the death of over 100 billion sentient beings every year. You know, Animals that have the same capacity to suffer as a cow or a rhino or an elephant or whatever it may be, a child. You know, just because we put ourselves at the top of the food chain, you know, it doesn't mean we have the right to determine what level of suffering is acceptable for, for all other sentient beings to endure. You know, it's, it's about walking the talk, mate. It's about fucking ripping all the layers off, mate, standing in front of the mirror and saying, is this the person you want to be? And if it's not, then fucking change it. And that goes for anything, mate, not just your diet. We're in a society where we outcast people who prey on the vulnerable prey on the weak, prey on the defenseless, and animals tick all those boxes. Yet here we are creating industrialized systems to kill these animals in the billions and exploit them. That's not who I wanted to fucking be, mate. I don't want to be a part of that shit. 
You know, we got fed a load of bullshit from day one on food pyramids that were designed by the meat and dairy industry. It's fucking bullshit, mate. I'm 106 kilos, pretty low body fat at the moment. I live on plants, mate, because I just don't want to fuck with animals. I don't want to fuck with something that can't defend itself, and I don't want to pay someone else to do it. Damo, you are definitely walking the talk, my friend. I'm proud of you. You've just achieved so much, and you can hear it in your voice. You're uh, you're not you're not about to slow down. How do um how do people help? So, what are we linked to this show? So, if anyone's listening and they want to want to help with uh, the amazing work you're doing in conservation, what do we do? Yeah, awesome, uh, Tony. Thanks very much, mate. We've got a website, IAPF. That's India Alpha Papa Foxtrot org. The International Anti Poaching Foundation. The little Google search there, you'll find a website or a bunch of uh, you know, recent media that, that's been done. And uh, yeah, just, I mean, not even about us, but about the cause, the mission, you know, find out more about it. When people know more about what's going on, they can make educated decisions about how they want to be part of the solution. You know, we're here, we're not going anywhere, we're growing. You know, grateful for the exposure, mate. Thanks for having us on. And, um, you know, to everyone out there that wants to be a part of, uh, of change and it's just a matter of you know, making decisions you know whether it's you know we, we've got to be out here fucking all day on the front lines protecting these animals with automatic weapons and people that are risking their lives easiest way to protect animals don't stick them in the fucking mouth right that's a great note to end on mate go spend some time with your family safe travels over to Denmark and uh, look forward to catching up again soon thanks very much mate appreciate it Well, that's a wrap for today, everyone. I sincerely appreciate your time. I'd love to hear your feedback and get your reviews. If there's anyone who you think I should be interviewing, send me their details and I'll reach out. And please share this with anyone in your life who you think might connect with what we're all about here at The Antitoxin. Have fun out there today and try not to take life too seriously.